0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 10.45 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I heard a joke recently um, about a foolish man who got tired of bearing the brunt of all the office jokes. And so he went home one evening and decided to memorize all of the state capitals. And so at the staff meeting the next morning, the fool stood up and he announced, listen, I just want you all to know that I did something last night I bet none of you could do. I memorized all the state capitals. And shocked, one of his uh, co-workers asked him, what's the capital of Missouri? He said, easy. The fool replied, "It's M." <laughs> I took some of you a little longer than it should have. <clears throat> As Proverbs 186 reminds us, a fool's lips walk right into a fight, and a, his mouth invites a beating. Well, this morning, King Solomon wants to help us avoid beatings. Well, we're in week four of our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and just like any book of wisdom, literature. The ultimate aim here of Ecclesiastes is to help us avoid foolishness, to help us walk in wisdom. Wisdom can be understood biblically as competency at living well. Folly, then, its opposite is incompetence at right living. Folly is an inability or failure to act as one should. And the Bible does often use this analogy of walking the path of life. Proverbs 19.3 warns, a man's folly brings his path to ruin. But Proverbs 15.21 says, a man of wisdom walks straight ahead. And so Solomon, our tour guide, through Ecclesiastes, wants to help us find that straight and narrow path that Jesus has called us to, the way of wisdom. But before... We can. Solomon is going to lead us down just about every other dead-end path out there that he has tried taking in his vain pursuit of meaning and joy here under the sun, apart from God, to make sure that we know which paths to avoid. That's his approach. And so far, he's taken us down the paths of work, creation, knowledge, progress, legacy, pleasure, wealth, time, even wisdom itself, pursuing wisdom for the sake of wisdom. But Solomon is not done searching there yet. He is bound and determined to try every possible path under the sun uh, and explore them and expose them for the meaninglessness and joylessness that they are apart from God. And so Solomon's going to check six new paths this morning in chapters 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. If you have your Bibles and want to begin turning there, actually it's just five new paths because one of them is a repeat from previous weeks. But spoiler alert, All of them he's going to lump together and call folly. It's all folly, foolishness. He uses the word fool or foolish five times in these 25 verses to describe these six pursuits, these six paths. So lots to get to. I'm going to go quickly, uh, take notes as quickly as you can. We'll dive in. Would you stand with me as you're able to for the reading of God's word? From Ecclesiastes chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never even asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. When he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Chapter 5 now. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, to draw near When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying, it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Now I pray may words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight O lord our rock and our redeemer I pray in jesus name amen you may be seated and you may silence your cell phones and somebody may go out in the foyer and grab all the teenagers because i'm missing the youth group who's usually up here on the front row and pastor thad's on vacation apparently they're all just skipping church so if somebody wants to go Uh, Bring the teens in, that'd be great. Uh, Number one, it's folly to trust in propriety. Propriety is rightness or justness. It is folly to trust in fairness, in justice here under the sun in our sinful fallen world that we live in, as Solomon laments in verses one through three here. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. Now, some of y'all aren't going to like what I'm about to say, or rather what Solomon just said, so if you send me angry emails this week, I'm just going to forward them to him. But here it goes. Critical theory is half right. According to Ecclesiastes 4, the social philosophy known as critical theory, many of you Familiar with critical race theory, a few of you probably know what it actually is. It really gets the story half right. It is right in its diagnosis of our problem here under the sun. It just offers us the wrong prescription and response. Here's what I mean Critical theory essentially understands all of human history as a struggle between the oppressed and their oppressors. It's a struggle for power. And whoever has more power, bigger army, uh, more money, or advanced technology, tends to use that power to advance their own cause, often at the expense of others who they keep under them so as to keep their power. Now, Solomon is just as clear here as the annals of history are. That's all true. Uh, there really are oppressed and oppressors, and human history is a, the history of power struggle. But the problem with critical theory is its proposed solution to that, namely that all the oppressed just need to band together and rise up and usurp the power. That was Karl Marx's suggestion, or if you're uh, today a straight white male, part of the, the dominant group with the power in this country, you're supposed to apologize for your entire existence and... And abdicate your power, or gladly take demotion, so that others, from marginal groups, can gain power. Because critical power, critical theory understands social progress as a zero sum game. Now, that part is not the Bible's remedy for the problem. Scripture affirms that actually, we all have some power. Yes, some really do have more than others, but to whom much is given, much is expected. And we're all expected to use whatever power we've been given by Jesus, like Jesus did, to help others. See, Jesus didn't apologize for being the most powerful man to ever walk the planet, God in the flesh. Nor did Jesus think that everyone had to be equal. I mean, he called 12 disciples, and all of them were Jewish men. But what Jesus did do was remind those to whom he gave his power, How to use it, not to be served, but to serve. Solomon rightly observes here that most people don't live like that. He says, I see a whole lot of oppression here under the sun. Sure, it's great to pursue justice. Psalm one hundred six three. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Isaiah one seventeen. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Amos five twenty four. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Micah six eight. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. To all of those biblical injunctions and the dozens more like them, Solomon emphatically agrees. Amen. Uh, you cannot follow Jesus and not be concerned for justice. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Let's read Matthew 25. And yet, Solomon laments here, if you're putting your trust, like your ultimate hope, and this pipe dream of a socially just world, of us actually achieving God's lofty vision of a perfectly ordered and just, fair society here under the sun, then you're going to be a very sad, disappointed, frustrated person. Because the other major thing that critical theory badly misses is the underlying cause, the root cause of all the oppression, and that's sin. It's that we're all inherently sinful. Ever since the fall, it's in our nature to look out for ourselves as numero uno. And friends, the only cure for that sin, for all sin, is Jesus. And so, until he returns to finally defeat all injustice and oppression and sin, until we're all living under the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, Solomon says... We can work toward justice, and we should, but we better expect injustice, because sadly it's, it's folly to expect anything else, but that grieves him. Solomon cries in verses 2 and 3 here, I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, but better than both of them, is the one who has not yet been because he hasn't seen the evil deeds done in the sun. There's so much evil down here, Solomon says, you're better off dead, so you can just escape all the injustice. He says, but even better than that is to not ever have even been born, because then you haven't had to witness any of this evil at all. This is a difficult, dark path that Solomon, right out of the gate this morning, has has led us down. It quickly leads Solomon right back to that cliff that he discovered and each of our last two Sermons, last two chapters, death, right? He gets real existential, real quick. <laughs> Might as well die. And so he, he, he doubles back, he doesn't walk off the cliff. He doubles back, he comes back, and he tries path number two, production, production. I told you we've got five new paths and one repeat. This is our repeat. If you've been keeping track, yes, Solomon has now re-examined this pursuit of work. In every single chapter thus far, four times, he must have really been a workaholic uh, because Solomon has had to re-remind himself four times now that there's no lasting meaning or hope in our work. This time he's going to expose four different problems with looking for your fulfillment in work. First comes from a bad motivation. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Solomon says even our best work, you know, these great buildings we build and all all the best things we do are driven by bad motives. The only reason we put a man on the moon is because we were jealous the Russians beat us to space. The only reason Steve Jobs spent his whole life building us, creating, designing all those cool toys is because he was jealous that Bill Gates was a bigger nerd, that Bill Gates had more money. And the only reason we buy him is out of envy. You want to be employee of the month, so you can get the promotion and the bonus, so you can afford the 2019 Honda Odyssey, so you can keep up with the Joneses. And Solomon says, if you think that's going to satisfy you, you might as well be chasing the win, because there will always be another Jones. Unless you're Elon Musk, there will always be someone richer than you to chase. And even Elon is just chasing King Solomon, who had eight times his net worth. So maybe the answer is not to work at all. Just don't even try. Bad effort is even worse. No motivation is even worse than bad motivation. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Folding of one's hands is a Hebrew idiom that means laziness, sloth. Solomon says you might as well eat your own flesh. It's It's a vivid image, isn't it? He says... When when you go hungry, you're wasting away. You're nothing but skin and bones. Just remember, you did it to yourself. You effectively ate your own flesh. So what does he conclude in verse 6? Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. Why? Because of work's bad satisfaction. It's bad fulfillment of our Longings are satisfaction. Thirdly, quietness. Quietness here is another idiom, synonym for contentment. Better is contentment with just one handful than to have both your hands full of nothing but toil. He says you don't want no handfuls like the fool in verse 5, but if you're always grabbing for as much as you can get your hands on with both your hands and you'll never be content if you always need just a little more to make you happy. No, he says the wise man, the wise woman will quietly accept exactly what God has given. That is the prayer of Agur in Proverbs chapter 30. God give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord? God why do I need God? Look at all my stuff. Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So just one handful for me, please. Because otherwise, fourthly, you're going to run the risk of all your hard work leading you to a bad result. Where does it get you in the end? Bad end result. He, he, he paints this picture of, of, let's just play this out. You know, 50 years down the road, where is it going to leave you? Verses 7 and 8. says, here's some more hevel. A person who has no other, neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with his riches. He never asks, for whom am I even toiling, depriving myself of pleasure. Solomon finds three problems here with this way of living, with this workaholic. For starters, he's never satisfied. You will always find more work to do. No end to his toil. You'll always find more wealth. to pursue. The wealthaholic will always find more money that he doesn't have, that he wants to get his eyes are never satisfied with his riches secondly, you're going to end up lonely he says a person who has no other you spend so much time at the office you've got no time for friends even your family, those who are supposed to be closest to you feel like they don't even know you anymore because they barely see you and so you, you start driving people away from you and if you're not careful you get to the end of your life you look around and realize who was I even working for and nobody's even here They've all left. I have no one to leave my giant estate to because I've effectively pushed everyone out of my life. And lastly, thirdly, you can get so caught up in this pursuit of wealth, work, that you forget to even enjoy it along the way. Solomon warns, don't work so hard that you deprive yourself of any and all, and all pleasure along the way. He says it doesn't make a bit of sense to spend your whole life at the office making all that money so you can buy the bigger home that you don't even go home to. So you can afford those fancier vacations you don't even have time to take. So you can buy your kids the latest gadgets to distract them from the fact that for all intents and purposes they have an absentee father. Solomon says, that's heaven. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you make an idol of work and wealth, you will turn out a frustrated, lonely, pleasureless even Ebenezer Scrooge or a Daniel Plainview. From the end of there will be blood. All this money, no one to enjoy it with. And so Solomon sticks with this theme now of relationship. It's a segue to relationship. Verses 9 through 12. Number three, he declares privacy to be folly. Have you noticed this better than theme? First, Solomon said it's better not to be born than to live here under the sun because justice is evil." Next, he said, better is quietness, contentment than busyness, because work is hevel. And here, in verse 9, he says, two are better than one. That's a common, he's going to say it five times, better than. Two are better than one because solitude is hevel. Your idol of alone time or self-sufficiency or whatever it is in you that keeps people at a distance, It's folly. And once again, he's going to give us four reasons why. So, listen up, you introverts. Uh, Those of you who fantasize about going off the grid and living out in the wilderness somewhere all by yourself, you've seen Into the Wild, haven't you? Spoiler alert, he dies all alone and realizes only after it's too late that happiness is only real when it's shared. It's better to live in relationship for four reasons. So, we'll stick with four Ps. First, for productivity. He says, two, have a good reward for their toil, return on investment. Even if you're a workaholic, you can get twice as much done. Maybe more than that, because synergy, right? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Second, he says, you've got someone to pick you up when you're down. Verse 10, if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, you can take that literally, physically. Maybe you remember the Life Alert commercials. Help! I've fallen and I can't get up, right? That's when you know it's time to put grandma in the home. Don't make her wait half an hour or an hour on Life Alert. She needs a roommate. She needs a nurse. She needs someone to pick her up. It's true emotionally, too. I used to coach tennis. High school tennis, and it always drove me crazy when I had to play one of my stronger players on my team at doubles. I wanted to play her at singles because every match counts for one point. So it's more strategic, it's more efficient to have your best players play singles. But when a girl is so mentally weak that she could just make one mistake and just totally unravel and never recover, then what do you do? You have to put her with a teammate who's athletically weaker but mentally, emotionally tougher. Encourage her to pick her up physically, emotionally. Friends, you better believe it is true spiritually as well. Woe to him who is alone when he falls spiritually and has not another to lift him up. There's no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. It's a team sport. The Christian faith is a team sport. Scripture exhorts us in Galatians 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. This is God's answer to Cain's question from Genesis 4. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, we are. That's why we, that's why we do this thing called church. To bear one another's burdens." James 5:19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, bring someone, bring him back." So two are better than one for productivity, for that. Accountability pickup. And third, simply for pleasantness. Verse 11, "If two lie together, they can keep warm on a cold night. But how are you going to keep warm alone? How can one shave the back of his neck? Alone. How can one unzip her dress alone? How can one seesaw alone? Right, life is just more pleasant, isn't it? More practical when you've got a partner. A partner. And fourthly, and lastly, for protection. Verse 12. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Since I know for most of us are permanent partners or our spouses, and since I hope that if most of us are not getting physically attacked regularly, then I think this is a good opportunity to remind you that you really are being attacked daily, spiritually. Do you know that? Do you remember that often? That you really do have an enemy, and it's not your spouse. You have a spiritual enemy who wants to prevail against you, both of you, in your marriage, and he wants to do it by dividing you, by keeping you away, and by keeping you away from the church, I might add, the the wider Christian community as well. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And how do lions hunt? They divide and conquer, right? They separate the herd. separate the weakest prey from the rest of the herd. One water buffalo alone is no match for a single lion. But interestingly, even just two water buffalo have been known to survive an entire pack of hungry lions because they can stand rump to rump and they've got horns in every direction. Is that a picture of you and your spouse spiritually? Are you... Standing face to face, arguing horns locked, in battle with one another, making you easy prey. Or do you have each other's backs in this daily fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Friends, whether you are married or not, the big takeaway here, point. Number three, it's clear that we are all made for relationship. We have been made in God's Trinitarian relational image for relationship with one another. Privacy was the first thing in the Garden of Eden called not good. Remember Genesis 2.18? It is not good that man should be alone. We're made for one another. But first and foremost, we are made for relationship with God. That's where Solomon ends this section in verse 12. He says, two are better than one. But but here it says a threefold cord is not easily broken. Who's that? Threefold cord. That's you, your spouse, and God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that when God blesses a marriage, back to marriage here for a minute. When God blesses a marriage, when two become one flesh, God actually comes in and infuses, indwells that new union personally malachi 2:15, did god not make them one to become one flesh with a portion of his spirit in their union and god is with you in your marriage and a threefold cord is not quickly broken that's true for those of you who aren't married as well the, the wider your your circle of community accountability people to, to keep you on the straight and narrow pick you up when you're down the better threefold chord, Synergy, even exponentially stronger than twofold. Number four, folly number four. You're going to get a three-for-one special this, this time. Uh, it is folly to trust in personal experience, in power, and in popularity. Add a blank in your bulletin to trust in popularity. Verses 13 through 16 here are somewhat enigmatic. Lots of different interpretations. Some view this rags-to-riches riches story as an, an illusion back to the life of Solomon's father, King David, who was a poor young shepherd turned king. Others note this reference to prison in verse 14 and make a connection instead to Joseph's story. I think it's probably just a parable that Solomon invents to illustrate the folly of all three of these pursuits at once. Uh, you know, age... Experience, maturity, wisdom, uh, power, influence, popularity, fame, reputation, whatever synonyms you want for those three things. He starts in verse 13 with his, again, now common refrain, better. He sticks with the better things. He says, better the poor but wise youth than the old and foolish king who no longer takes advice. So typically in the Bible and in life, uh, old age is commensurate with wisdom, but not always and not here. And here the old king ignores the wisdom of Proverbs 12, 15, that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man knows to listen to advice. So Solomon says, better to be poor and young with wisdom than to be rich and old with folly. But then... There's a twist ending to the story, because we read on in verse 14, the young man's wisdom takes him out of prison all the way up to the throne. Look, verse 14, he eventually deposes the foolish old king. He's going to reign in his place instead. That's how far wisdom can get you. But then look at verse 16. It says, there's no end of all the people that this wise young king now ruled over. Yay. And yet, those who come later will not rejoice in it. In fact, Solomon's already told us in chapter one, they won't even remember him. There's no remembrance of things in former times. So Solomon concludes, this too is Hevel. Living for popularity is just as empty as living for power, and ultimately, just as li- empty as living for wisdom itself, because even the wise king is going to die, and you can't take your wisdom with you when you go. So, where do we turn when we long for justice, but find nothing but oppression? When we toil all day long, but we're left joyless? When we're sick of people, you can't live with them, but you can't live without them. When you you desire age, influence, popularity, power, fame, and, and, and you get it like Solomon did, and all of it leaves you feeling empty, where do you turn? You turn to religion. You find Jesus and turn to religion, only to discover that path number five, pseudo-piety, is folly and hevel as well. Pseudo, fake, phony, empty, piety, worship, religion. So fake, insincere worship, empty religious ritualism, pseudo-piety is hell. Solomon says there are three things that God is actually after in our worship, in real, genuine worship. God wants a changed heart, he wants close mouthed hearing, and he wants committed hands. Look at all three. First, a changed heart, verse 1. Solomon opens chapter 5 with these words, Be careful walking into the house of God. In his day, the temple. Be careful doing it presumptuously. That's the scenario he plays out in verse 1. Presumptuous, unwarrantedly or impertinently bold. That's the heart of the fool at the altar when he offers his sacrifice. Solomon explains he doesn't know that he's doing evil. So the irony here, see if you can follow this, the irony and the evil is that the fool comes to offer his sacrifice, which by definition and by God's design was instituted to atone for sin, and yet the fool is sinning in his very act of offering that sacrifice because he's doing it unrepentantly, unremorsefully, for his sin which necessitated the offering in the first place. This is why 1 Samuel 15:22 reminds us, it's not about the animal. It's about your heart. It's always been about your heart. It's not about the animals in the Old Testament, it's not about raising your hands in worship in the New Testament. It's about your heart. Has the Lord as great desire in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams, or Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, God says. He says, if your heart was in the right place, you wouldn't need the sacrifice to begin with. He says, and the whole point of the sacrifice is to get your heart back to the right place. Otherwise, you're just killing poor innocent animals for nothing. Okay, so now let's bring it into the 21st century. Because we don't have a temple anymore, but we do still come to the house of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 identifies the church now as the new household of God. And we might not bring dead animals anymore, but we still bring offerings today, don't we? Romans 12 invites us to. Offer your, your, your bodies, your whole selves as living sacrifices to God. We offer God our worship, our songs, our prayers, our, our service, our volunteering, our, t- our money, our ties, our time and attention during the sermon. Some of you consider that quite a sacrifice. Maybe some weeks you prefer to just bring the dead animal. But Solomon's question here is this. How do you bring your offering into the house of God? Let's check your heart this morning. Check your heart. In what manner, in what heart manner are you bringing your offering to God here this morning? Are you just going through the motions? Like the fool who brings his offering to the temple week after week, year after year, thinking that he is somehow fulfilling his religious duty, when Solomon says, in reality, God is up in heaven holding his nose in disgust because what he wants isn't the sacrifice, it's obedience. It's not a burnt offering, it's steadfast love. He wants our hearts. Does God have your heart this morning, brother, sister? You roll in halfway through the opening worship set just in time to spend the call to confession looking for a seat and then you half heartedly lip sync along to the hymn of assurance because I'm just not really an expressive worshiper and then you doze off during the sermon because you stayed up late last night binge watching Netflix and then you just get downright frustrated by the closing prayer is this guy ever going to shut up and let us go to lunch and then you rush through the Lord's Supper, you check your watch through the closing song, and you check the game's kickoff time during announcements, and you skip the fellowship time after the service altogether. If more than half of those nine marks just described you, then it's probably a safe bet that your heart is not in your worship. That God does not have your heart this morning. In fact, it's not really worship at all. It's just pseudo-piety. It's faux-religiosity. Solomon says, you would be better off staying at home. He says, guard your steps before you come to the house of God. Because God wants a changed heart. Secondly, he wants closed-mouthed hearing. Solomon says, if you do draw near... It is better to listen than to speak. Be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God for God is in heaven and you are just on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Imagine with me stepping out of your time machine into the Pennsylvania State House as the Founding Fathers were discussing and putting the final touches on July 4th, 1776 on the Declaration of Independence. Or imagine stepping out of your time machine onto the charred battlefield at Gettysburg right as President Lincoln is opening his famous address or stepping into the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester just as Adele is singing her first notes ever on stage in public you don't speak in those kinds of moments do you there are some moments that are transcendent where your job is to shut up and listen Solomon's point is, how much more so in the presence of Almighty God? Every moment is transcendent. The most important commandment in the Old Testament, the one that every good Jew to this day still recites twice a day, the Shema, starts with the word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, hear. Listen, our proper worship begins when we shut our mouths and open our ears to listen to God. That's why we spend over half of this service with you just listening. Hopefully not passively listening, but listening nonetheless. Hopefully to God's words, in spite of me, flowing through me to you. 4, verse 3. A dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. He says where you see a lot of work, you can deduce that someone must be chasing their dream. And when you hear a lot of words, you can deduce that somewhere a fool has their mouth open. So James 119 exhorts us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. But thirdly, when you do speak, God wants committed hands, ready to follow through on your words. Listen, talk is cheap. You better back it up with your actions. Verses 4 through 7. When you do vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you vow and not pay. Let your mouth not lead you into sin. You're thinking, oh, there's all these vows and oaths. It's a big deal in the Old Testament. We don't really do that anymore. I'm only taking one vow at the altar, my wedding. Don't get caught up on the semantics here. Here's the point How often do you and I make promises to God that we fail to keep? I wonder if the most dangerous time speaking of our corporate worship service, if the most dangerous time in our corporate worship service is the 20 to 30 seconds after the sermon where I invite you for a time of personal prayer and reflection, for personalizing and applying the message as the Holy Spirit leads you. Because I pray, I hope and pray that in those moments you are led, convicted by the Holy Spirit To make real commitments to be not just hearers of the word. We need to hear first. Hearing is is important. It's like over 50% of the battle, hearing. But we want to be not just hearers, but the doers. And I pray that in those moments, God is stirring in your heart to impress and apply and work His word that has been preached in and through your heart. How are you going to respond in the week to come? God, I know, I'm convinced now, you want me to share the gospel with that coworker who you've been putting on my heart all morning long this Sunday. I'm finally going to do it this week. Or God, I am convicted. I, I need to confess that hidden sin to my spouse on the drive home today. Or God, I'm finally going to take the next step at this church. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to join as a member. I'm going to finally plug in and serve somewhere. I'm going to finally start giving financially. I'm going to up it and tithe 10%. By the time we've prayed, we've eaten, we've sung, been addicted, dismissed, we've already forgotten. And I wonder if maybe, if I can be really honest this morning, brutally, I wonder if maybe that's why we don't get many, very many of those sermon application cards turned in after Sundays. Because part of my whole pitch to you in us using them as a church and saying, hey, we're going to use these because when you write something down, you're more likely to actually do it. I just wonder if maybe some of us don't actually want the accountability and the follow through to do it, to apply it. It's easier just to listen. Has, have I touched a nerve yet? Have I offended you? Solomon touched a nerve if he didn't touch a nerve uh, poking at your idol of morality justice work your alone time your self uh, sufficiency your power your popularity your wisdom your religion then let's try one more how about politics politics Let's just go out with a bang this morning. I think you'll all be relieved to know that I didn't save a lot of time for this one on purpose. In short, Solomon observes that some people's desire for justice leads them to trust in the government to fight injustice. No one's laughing yet. And to those people, Solomon replies, Seriously? The politicians, he says, government bureaucracy is the reason for injustice. Verse 8, don't be surprised when you see the poor oppressed, when you see justice violated, because... The high official is watched by a higher one, and there are yet higher ones over them, too. The Hebrew verb here for watched does not suggest, imply accountability, quite the opposite. The idea here is that every politician has someone above them who is looking out for them, who has got their back, who's covering for them and covering up for them. Solomon is talking about the old boys' network that is politics. He says, friends... If you are so desperate that you're putting your, your hope and your trust in the government and the politicians, oh, talk about a Hail Mary. I mean, you are grasping at straws indeed. This, this is folly to trust in them. And so Solomon ends with this sort of cryptic verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. When the Israelites demanded a king in the Old Testament, just like all the other nations, God warned them that any human was going to be sinful, was going to exploit them, was going to tax them, was going to take from them, from their fields. Whereas back in Deuteronomy 28, when God had made his covenant and and offered to be their king, If they would just obey him, what did God offer them, promise them? He promised to give to them, to bless your fields, to prosper you, to cultivate your fields for you. But they rejected God as their king. And so I think this is Solomon, who himself had, of course, worn the mantle of the king, and he's now getting ready to pass the torch on to his deadbeat son, Rehoboam, who within a couple of years is going to completely run the kingdom straight into the ground. And Solomon is reflecting here at the end of his life as a king. With all the ups and downs. And he thinks, you know, it sure would be nice to get back to God's kingship, wouldn't it? To a, to a king, committed to cultivating our fields for us, if we would just obey him, a king who wants to bless us, a king who works not for his own good, what can I get from the people, but for our good, how can I bless the people, that kind of king, a godly, a god, king. Friends, you need to know that you have just such a king this morning, a king who who is ready to offer you this morning so much better than some crops. So much better than health, wealth, and happiness, and whatever they're selling, and half the churches out there. You have a king who is offering you eternal life. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is not folly to trust in him. It's folly to trust in justice and fairness in your job, your work, your self sufficiency, your alone time, and your life experience and wisdom, your power and influence, your popularity, and reputation, in and your religiosity, your empty ritualism. It's folly to trust in your politician of choice. I don't care what party you're from, but it is not folly to trust in Jesus. He alone can fill the God-shaped void in your heart because he alone was God in the flesh, and he died for your sins to make a way to reconcile you to your perfect heavenly father trust in jesus this morning your king and you will be saved